0: Proverbs thirty twenty four. You notice the four and three, sometimes it's six and seven. It's a device used in Proverbs to build up what is coming. And the last one seems to be the climactic thing often. Here's what verse 24 says. Four things are small on the earth, but they're exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. The Shephanim are not mighty people, yet... They make their homes in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard you may grasp with the hands, yet it is in king's palaces. We've been looking at Proverbs to get hints for parenting God's children and also to get insight as to how our heavenly Father is parenting you and me because we're his children. Where can I go to learn wisdom? And the answer is everywhere, everywhere. We saw that everything everywhere was made by the wisdom of God. Proverbs 8 talks about this, as does other places in Proverbs. Everything. The little squirrels with nuts in their fat little cheeks, the wind sweeping the leaves off of the trees these past weeks, the stars in the heavens, everything, everything is made by the wisdom of God. It's infused with the wisdom of God. So anyone who writes about creation or life, philosophers, scientists, poets, singers, whether they want to or not, are in some way exhibiting the wisdom of God. And we can learn from them, even if unwittingly they are teachers of wisdom. And so there are many, many teachers. There are so many teachers. God has filled our lives with teachers. Not everything they say is right. There's no doubt about that. And so every lesson that we take from them, well, we have to edit it. We have to ponder it. Not everything we draw from nature is correct. Every lesson may not be what God wants us to. But God has given us light, true light in his word, and he's filled us with the spirit of wisdom through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so through these gifts, we can grow in wisdom everywhere, all the time. everything. So let's look at this little text in Proverbs chapter 30. One thing we can know is that Solomon sought wisdom wherever he could find it. Ecclesiastes 12.9, the preacher talks about Solomon. It says, in addition to being a wise man, listen to this, he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. He searched out proverbs. He didn't come up with all of them. He wanted to know what other wisdom there was around him. In fact, this particular chapter, chapter 30, look at verse 1. It's kind of interesting. It says these are not the words of Solomon. In fact, these are the words of Eger or Agur, however you want to say it. And it's someone who appears to be from outside of Israel, perhaps what we would call a pagan king. It says here he is, in our translation, the son of Jaki, the oracle. But the word oracle is interesting. The Hebrew word is masa, which happens to be also the name of a tribe, one of the sons of Ishmael, if you go back to Genesis chapter 25. And so it's possible that this was a man who was from one of these tribes in northern Arabia, which 1 Kings actually commends for their wisdom. And the same appears in the next chapter, chapter 31, verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. So he's quoting his mother, but King Lemuel nor Agur or Agor are mentioned anywhere in the scriptures as royalty there. They seem to be from outside of God's covenant people, and they're sharing wisdom. It seems to be some Proverbs that are from Egypt in two places in chapter 22:17 and in 24:23 they seem to be almost section labeled it says these are the sayings of the wise and there's good reason to think that some of these sayings came from other countries maybe even egypt because they found pieces of clay with proverbs on them with sayings on them and they've been dated to several hundred years before solomon and some of these proverbs are almost identical very much like what's in the book of Proverbs. So the point is Solomon learned everywhere. He searched out wisdom. Not everything he learned was true. There's no doubt about it. And so in order to put these Proverbs in this book, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He edited them, corrected them. But the point is he learned from the wisdom of others. It's almost, you might say, a mark of wisdom to search out wisdom. Even nature was a teacher. We saw that in the earlier text, which was read, verses 18 and 19. But in our text, Proverbs 30, 24 to 28, here you have Solomon out for a walk. And he notices these small animals. Four things are small, verse 24 says, but exceedingly wise. They're small things. They appear weak, shy, disorganized, powerless. And yet, because they're wise, they prosper. Their lives are fruitful. Teachers are everywhere. That's what Solomon is saying. Now, what lessons did he draw from these animals? It's interesting that we're not exactly told, are we? They're hinted at. They're pointed to. Maybe they're proverbs you could come up with as you look at the same things. Maybe he thought of something like this. The answer is small. Yet, well, they have the wisdom to plan ahead. Even in the heat of summer, and that's really amazing, in the heat of summer, they're thinking of the cold that's coming and they begin to gather. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6, talks about the ants, that they have the wisdom. He says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Just think of it, tiny, tiny little brains. I mean, how much can be in there? And yet, they have the wisdom which many human beings don't have. That's what Solomon is saying. Are you one of those who's always caught by surprise when emergencies come? Are you one of those that never plans ahead, who, who thinks that life is always going to be summer? Learn from the ant. Learn from the ant. And then he says the Shephanim, they're little gopher-like animals who live in the rocky hillsides in Palestine. They have the wisdom to know their weaknesses. And that is great wisdom, isn't it? They know they're susceptible to these large animals, jackals, lions. Who knows? Anything can rip them apart. So what do they do? Well, they live among the rocks in the hillsides. They know how to seek refuge in rocks, in those things which are stronger than they are. What wisdom they have. Proverbs 22, verse 3 says, A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on. And are punished. What wisdom we can learn from these little creatures. Have Have you assessed your weaknesses? I know we're always thinking about our strengths. We're taught that way in our culture. To boast about how great we are and how many things we can do. And we're all stars. But have you assessed your weaknesses? And have you sought God's provision of refuge and strength in those weaknesses? Or for those weaknesses? Have you assessed your weaknesses? And then there's the locusts which swarm thousands and thousands of them. They go here and there and they have no leader. And yet, you see, they have the wisdom to know they can't go alone. They know that in order to be fruitful, they have to be part of a community. They have to be part of others. Like an army, they work together and working together, they conquer. I remember as a boy seeing out of a clear blue sky, a tiny little cloud over a mountain range in the north. I was in India, and the sky was crystal clear, all blue, but this tiny little black dot. And I thought, what in the world is that? A few hours passed, several hours passed, and pretty soon everybody in the city knew because this cloud of locusts descended on the whole city. I thought it was really cool. You know, a little boy, everywhere you ran, clouds of locusts would fly up. And it was kind of fun, but it wasn't fun for the farmers or anybody growing anything because they ate every green thing. Only little twigs were left. And when they were all done eating, as if on command, they all took off to conquer some new territory. Couldn't do it alone, but they did it together. There's wisdom there. Do you think you can go it alone? Do you think you have that capacity? Do you know that you need to travel with others or on the path of following Jesus, if you do that, you too will be a conqueror. You too will live fruitfully. And then the lizard. The lizard appears so helpless. It's easy to grab with your hands. It doesn't have much power or certainly doesn't roar. And yet it has the wisdom to use the gifts God has given it. And with these gifts, it rules like a king. It can go wherever it wants, It has these amazing feet with suctions. You know, it can walk upside down if it wants. And So it sneaks into palaces and it walks on ceilings that are encrusted with gold and with jewels like a prince. And nobody can stop it. Are you making the most of what God has given you? You have the wisdom to make the most of what God has given you. You see, he he looks at nature, and he says, I can learn everywhere. I'm out for a walk. God is giving me his wisdom. Sometimes we get it wrong. We may learn the wrong lessons from these animals, and that's okay. What do you do? Well, as a seeker after wisdom, you go and you discuss it with others. You ponder more deeply. Your thinking is corrected, and you grow in wisdom. But there's something to learn everywhere. There's some who deny God, for example. There's many who deny God, of course, in this day and age. But what's interesting is that when they write, for example, or make television shows or movies about God's nature or really about life itself, they end up displaying the wonder of God's wisdom whether they like it or not. So read what they write. Watch what they produce. Look at it because you can learn from everywhere if you take what is good. Sometimes those television programs, sometimes those books, which I enjoy reading and I enjoy watching those remarkable television shows about nature, don't you? And sometimes you see the wonder in God's amazing wisdom and genius side by side with blasphemy. You have to sift it through, you have to take what you should and leave the rest. But they teach us about things that we would never see ourselves. I didn't know that birds slept with half their brain, did you? It's amazing. To protect themselves from predators, half their brain is asleep and half is awake, you know, so one eye is closed, one is open, looking. And then they switch after a while. Isn't that great? We should try that at night. I didn't know that, but it's really remarkable. What does it mean? I don't know. I want to think about it, though. It gives me wisdom. I didn't know that there was... Estimated 1.4 billion insects for every man, woman, and child on the earth. By the way, they're all in my yard. If you, if you want to meet them, <laughs> they're all in my yard. That the tongue of the blue whale weighs more than a car. I think these are amazing things. If you ask me, what does it mean? I don't know. I'm going to think about it. I hope you will too. Everything was made by God's wisdom. What does it say? I don't know. Figure it out, think about it. They're pictures of who God is, of his purposes, and they're somehow pictures of our place in the universe that he has made. Everything speaks of the glory of God. Psalm 19, I read earlier, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the whole firmament, all the sky, is filled with his glory. Psalm 111, verse 2 says, Wonderful are the works of the Lord, studied by those who take pleasure in them. Studied. Takes a while. Ponder them. Take pleasure in them, and you'll grow in wisdom. Psalm 8 talks about, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic your name is in all the earth. And then it says, when I consider the heavens and the works of thy hands, whoa, what is mankind that you care for him? Isn't it amazing that in this vast universe, We're significant. It's full of wisdom. Open our eyes, open our ears and look. Now someone's going to say, all right, great. We learn wisdom everywhere. We can even learn it from pagan writers and philosophers. But aren't we then trampling on the authority, the unique authority of God's word as the revelation of truth? So I think we have to be careful. But here's something to notice. You notice that the Bible itself Quotes pagan sources. Paul quotes Epimenides, a Cretan philosopher. He quotes Aratus, a Cilician poet. He quotes a comic Menander, a comic playwright. But he's not saying, "Forget the Bible. Go read these guys, and you'll get all I want." No, he quotes them to people who read them in order to point them to the God who is the Creator of heaven and earth. But he quotes these things. Jesus quotes commonplace proverbs. You know, In Matthew 16, he says, here's a proverb you guys all believe. It will be fair weather because the sky is red in the morning and it's going to be a storm because the sky is red in the evening. Well, he says, that's wonderful. You have wisdom about that. He seems to affirm that wisdom. It's not in the Bible, but it seems to be true. But then he says, he applies it spiritually. He says, now, how foolish you are that you have wisdom to read the signs in the clouds and in the sky, but you can't read the spiritual signs which are so obvious in front of you. The Bible itself quotes these pagans. What these pagans wrote was not God's word, we don't take it as revealed truth, but the truth is we can often glean wisdom from them in the light of God's word. So what has to happen? Well, all of them have to be held up to the standard of God's word. You see, that's the light, that's the truth, and it helps us to see which things are true, which things are not. It helps us to sift through what we read and what we see and to glean what is good and fruitful for true wisdom. Let me give you an illustration. I know in America we don't like the metric system, but the meter is more precisely defined than the yard, at least in history, you know that. I mean, a yard was the distance between the king's nose and the tip of his finger. You know, I don't know, it varied, I'm sure, from king to king and time to time. But a meter was precisely defined in the 18th century. In fact, there was an iron rod kept in Paris in the 18th century, which was the standard meter. This is how big a meter is. Well, by the way, I should say now it's defined even more precisely by the travel time of light over a certain specified distance and so on. But it was the exact standard by which every other meter stick had to be measured. Here's the analogy. That's a picture of the Bible. People can say, I think a meter is about eh, like that. And so you hold it and you hold it up to that iron rod and you say, Oh, I'm wrong. I'm close, but a little bit more. See, that's the standard. That's what you hold it up to. And that's what the scriptures are. The scriptures are God's revealed truth and they tell us what wisdom is and what falsehood is. But not everyone could go out and check this meter stick, of course. You can't always go to this one place where the meter stick was kept. Suppose there was a carpenter who was told to make a certain length two meters long and he looks at his stick and, you know, he's been using it for 20 years. The ends are worn out a little bit and he says, I don't know if this is still a meter. How do I know whether my idea of a meter is exactly the right meter. And so the authorities were very bright. They put these marble sills, these marble plates, you might say, in about 16 places in the city of Paris. And they were standardized. This was a length that they had measured according to that iron rod, the standard, and they put them all through the city so people could go and measure what a meter was. So you could take a piece of string and say, ah, now I know exactly what a meter is. You could take a stick. Now I know exactly what a meter is, and I know whether this stick is right or whether it's wrong. So here's the analogy. So there's two places where we have to check. There's the meter stick, the iron rod. We have to check with the Bible. That's the standard. But then there's things that have been standardized. And we can consult with that also. Consult with those who teach the Bible, who have been appointed to do that. Consult with those who ponder the ways of the Lord and wisdom as found in Scripture, and then be corrected. And as you're corrected, you get more insight, and as you get more insight, you grow in wisdom. This is not contrary to the Word of God. This is saying that's our standard by which we judge all wisdom point is there are so many teachers. That's gracious of God. There's so many teachers. God teaches us in so many ways. Not every teacher is true, but every teacher can lead us in wisdom, even if it's only in discovering the error of the teacher. Because that's wisdom to figure out why someone is wrong and what the truth, therefore, is. A professor always used to tell us, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. He was a, from the school of philosophy, the logical positivists of some kind. And he belonged to that, but he said if he can't measure it, you know, there has to be something there. Measure a voltage, a temperature, the spectrum of light. You have to have something you can measure, otherwise it doesn't exist. I know it sounds weird and you might think, who thinks that way? Yet when you look at our world, I think, A lot of people, maybe most people in some way, think that way without necessarily wearing that label. People say, you know, all I know is what I feel. The only real thing that matters to me that I guide my life by is what I can experience. All that matters is, you know, the things I can touch or things that can touch me in some way, things that can move me. Those are the only things which are real. The rest doesn't exist. Well, then how can you measure God? If I can't feel God, if he doesn't touch me or if I don't touch him, then maybe there is no God. If the only things that exist are the things that I can measure and I can't measure God, then, you know, who cares? Either God doesn't exist or he's irrelevant to me. And most people live like that. And so you ponder this, and you should ponder it. The only things that are real are things you can measure. But on the other hand, as you think about it, you say the only things that can be measured with physical instruments are physical things. Whether these instruments are in a lab, thermometers and voltmeters, or things that I measure with my body, my emotions. The only things that can be measured with those physical tools are physical. But the Bible says that God is spirit. And those who come to him must come to him in spirit and in truth. So not come to me with ohm-meters, Don't come to me with a thermometer, come to me with your heart and come spiritually. So, of course, of course, if the Bible is true, you can't measure the true God. It's not that there is no God, but it's just that your instruments are wrong. You're using the wrong instruments to measure a spiritual being's presence. Okay, you say, this is pretty abstract. I don't know why you're going on and on about this. Well, let me just tell you, I think it affects the way many people live, even Christians, There's an insight here. Even today, every now and then, Christians applaud experiments done with prayer. Have you seen those things? You know, people say, let's see if prayer works. We're going to do an experiment. And so people who are scientists of one kind or another will say, what we'll do is we'll take this hospital, divide it into two. We'll have a group of people in this room. They'll pray for these 50 and they won't pray for those 50. Then we'll see the outcomes. And if the 50 that are prayed for do better, we say, hey, prayer works. Hey, there is a God. We want to measure it. If we can measure it, then it's real. But you know what? Scripture says God does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. He's going to monkey with that experiment just to laugh at us. He doesn't obey the laws of nature. He's not an electron being bent by magnetic fields. not a billiard ball, you know. Following the laws of mechanics, it doesn't mean he's real, only that he's beyond this reality, that he's behind this reality. And yet, we as Christians sometimes fall for the same kind of thinking. How many times have you felt this way or how many times have your friends learned the wrong wisdom from similar experiments? You know, I prayed for this. Oh, I prayed with all my heart. I prayed with fasting. I prayed like crazy, but nothing happened. It must mean there's no God. It must mean that prayer doesn't mean anything. Oh, it must mean that God doesn't love me. If I can't measure it, it doesn't exist. So yeah, there's wisdom in the world which is completely wrong. But as we think about it, it can also give us wisdom in response, in reaction to it, figuring out why it's wrong. The point is there are many teachers and we can learn wisdom from all of them. We should point our children to learn from everywhere, to be discerning, to use good judgment, but to learn everywhere and to grow in wisdom everywhere. Learn everywhere. Compare everything with the Word of God, but the wise are eager to learn. Solomon here learned. It says, as I pointed out earlier, that he collected the sayings of the wise. Paul read philosophers and playwrights and comics of the Greeks. I've quoted before, a long time ago, I read Richard Feynman's proverb, you might say, that he learned from his father. Just because you can name something doesn't mean that you understand it. And it's helped me tremendously to discern true wisdom from the speech of those who use big words to cover up their ignorance. I was reading John Piper describing one of his professors who had resolutions for mental health, and here's one of them. I shall stop boring into myself to discover what psychological or social categories I might belong to. Mostly, I shall simply forget about myself and do my work. Oh, what wonderful wisdom for all of us. Wonderful wisdom for all of us who are always asking, how do I feel? What do people think about me? Am I happy? Am I frustrated? Am I sad? Am I anxious? He says, mostly, I shall forget about myself and do my work. What wonderful wisdom for mental health. There's wisdom everywhere. See the mark of the fool is that she is always spouting her opinions. Mark of a fool is that he's always ready with an answer. Proverbs 18:2. A fool finds no pleasure in understanding but delights in airing his own opinions. But listen to the wise. Proverbs 18, 15. The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge. The ears of the wise seek it out. Be wise, be wise. Learn everywhere. There's so many teachers. Friends, Christ was wisdom incarnate. That's what the New Testament says. As we seek wisdom in all things, we end up learning about the one we love, about the Lord Jesus Christ, because his fingerprints are everywhere. Why do I say that? Because John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's talking about Christ, and everything that was made was made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Everywhere, everywhere is Christ. The scent of our Lord is everywhere. The wisdom of our Lord is everywhere. May God give us eyes and ears and minds and hearts to savor it. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, wisdom incarnate one who is the truth. We worship you and honor you, and we long for you. We want our hearts and our minds to be filled with that same wisdom. We know it'll bring us joy, it'll guide us through life, it'll save us from stumbling in the dark. We long, Lord, to be led by your wisdom. Give us hunger for it for ourselves and teach us, Lord, teach us to use every tool to raise up our children in the ways of wisdom. Pray it in your holy name. Amen. My blessing is from Psalm 1. May You be blessed because you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. You don't pay attention to their wisdom. You don't walk in the path of sinners. You don't sit and mock others with scorners, but you delight in the way and the word of the Lord. So may you be blessed and may your life flourish like a green tree.